our series today, which is the Reckless series of December. Thank you guys for being a part again. And with this series, we've been talking about the recklessness of faith. We've been painted a picture in our churches, uh, in our culture, that faith is this pretty little thing that you put on a coffee mug. But the Bible shows us that faith is actually something so daunting, so reckless, that it's scary to really think about acting in faith. When you read about the people of faith in the Bible, we are inspired by them. But when you look at the decisions they made in the actual circumstances, we see that they are flat out reckless in their choices. Some would even say that these people are foolish. In this series, we're going to analyze what walking in faith really looks like and how to take action without looking back. Now, I have a question to, to prod your minds as we get into the word today. And it is, what do you do when you see a need for something? When you see a need in the world, what do you do? What is your, your train of thought? Are you a person that says, man, somebody should really do something? <laughs> Anyone, please do something. I can't help seeing this horrible need go on any longer. Someone else, please do something. Maybe you're a person that, that starts thinking about it a long time and thinks, man, maybe there's a way I could do something. Maybe you're a person that just reacts right away and, and does something about it. But what do you do when you see a need for something? And we're going to be looking at the book of Esther today. Some say Esther. You know, usually whenever you hear a sermon about the book of Esther, it's usually Esther that you talk about. And even though Esther is a person that we're going to look at as steps of faith, we're going to look behind the scenes and see what steps of faith really happen. Who really took the big steps of faith throughout the book. And there's a lot of unsung heroes in this book that we're going to look at. And I thought the best way to look at this story is starting from the end and looking at the beginning. If you're like me, uh, I never really read the Bible. I was never taken to church or anything like that growing up. And even it took two years after I gave my life to Christ to realize what Easter was about. (laughs) And for me, I I don't like just giving you little excerpts of scripture and assuming that you already know what the book is about, what the story is about. I like to kind of give the whole story. And I actually did have just about the whole story to read out to you guys. (laughs) But I don't think we have enough time to, uh, for me to read it all. And so I'm going to explain some of it, read some of it, do a little bit back and forth so that we can get the whole story in. And again, like I said, we're going to read it from end to beginning because I think one of the most powerful things of this story is the transition from the beginning to end. And a lot of times we get stuck in the beginning and we have no sight of the end. We're in the struggle of right now And it's impossible for us to see a solution or a resolution to our story. Y'all know what I mean? And so I love the ending to this story. And it says in this scripture, uh, it says in the scripture and starting off today's message, it's no one else is the title. No one else. No one else. Look at your neighbor and say no one else. 
Who else is going to fill that need? Who else is going to do something about it? No one else. It says in, uh, in the book of Esther, starting in chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Again, we're reading from the end to the back, uh, from the end to the front. It says, On the same day, King Xerxes gave the property of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. Then Mordecai was brought before the king, for Esther had told the king how they were related. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken back from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai to be in charge of Haman's property. Then Esther went again before the king, falling down at his feet and begging him to, with tears to stop the evil plot advised by Haman, the Agagite, against the Jews. Again, the king held out his gold scepter to Esther, so she rose and stood before him. It's a pretty dramatic scene, and right after this scene, we see that the king gives Esther and Mordecai pretty much the free reign to make whatever law they want to be able to save all of their people, the Jews. What Haman did in this story was uh, pretty much the same thing, except a little bit before, and he could... Uh, made a law for this one certain day to be a complete killing of the Jews throughout all the towns. So this was pretty upsetting news to the Jews, knowing that there was literally a purge. Any of y'all seen that movie? Uh, maybe you've seen previews of it, where literally they made a law in the land saying, hey, no rules today, just kill all the Jews. <laughs> and you can take whatever they have, just do whatever you want, just make sure you kill them all. Uh, and so literally... Scare, imagine that scenario, how terrifying it would be if our country said, all right, we're going to take a day to kill all the Christians, okay? <laughs> Everyone that meets in a church um, on this specific day, let's, on July 4th, we're all going to go through the churches and, and kill everybody at church. That would be the most terrifying thing. Um, it would just be a horrible situation. And so that was what was going on. And now... Uh, what happens in the story is the king gives Mordecai and Esther the same, uh, the same privilege to make whatever law they want. He had Haman killed already. And now it says, uh, right after this part of the story, it says that uh, Esther and Mordecai made a law to where all the Jews actually get to do the opposite and kill their enemies. <laughs> so uh, it was like a total flip of the coin. They thought they were all going to die. They thought they were all going to be defeated. But instead, they were not only to stay alive and have victory, but have victory over their enemies. So it's completely opposite of what they expected. And when you read the, the next chapter of the story, it's really, like, uh, it's really like the movie of Star Wars. Like when the rebels defeated the Empire and there's like fireworks in the sky and like every, all the Ewoks come out, they're all cheering. And it's just like, man, what a perfect ending to a perfect movie. <laughs> That's really what this story is like. They totally copied Esther. Um, and it's so interesting to read the end of the story and think, hey, it all worked out. <laughs> and when you think about the struggles you go through, when you're in the middle of that struggle, it's so hard for you to see those fireworks at the end. Y'all know what I mean? In fact, it seems like it gets from bad to worse in your story. And it, it, it's so difficult to think, I'm going to get through this. It's going to all be all right. And that's why I wanted to start at the end of this story. And 
we're going to look directly at Esther first. Because to have a victory like this with fireworks and victory and everyone's safe, it's complete turnaround. You need somebody that's willing. Look at your neighbor and say, are you willing? We need someone that's willing. Someone that's willing. It says, I'm going to read again. Again, we're going to, we're going to do a good amount of reading. I'm going to do reading and talking. In Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to 10 through 16. Because I want you all to understand this part of the story. Right after this decree was made to kill all the Jews, we're backtracking now. This is what happened. It says, When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out into the city crying, crying with a loud, bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And as the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was a great mourning among all the Jews. They fasted, they wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. Horrible scenario. And then we're going to jump down. And it says, Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called me to come for, to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. Mordecai sent his reply to Esther. So Esther is pretty much saying, I, I would go to the king right now, but dude... If I go to him, he could literally just kill me on the spot if he's in a bad mood. If he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, I'm dead. And Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will rise from, the same, from some other place but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps, just maybe, you were made queen for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Notice that we're going to do the 21-day fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. If I must die, I must die. You know, this is a really powerful decision that Esther makes. You ever had a moment where you knew that there's something that needed to be done, but you saw the sacrifice that it was going to have to take? You saw the risks that were involved in making this decision. And... Esther was pushed and positioned to make a decision at the right time. We already know how the story ends, but she doesn't know that at this point. And, and the king doesn't just have Esther at his disposal. Early in the story, we see that he has literally dozens, if not hundreds, of other women that could be queen, if not her. So he could literally replace her like that. But it says that Esther made this decision after really just seeing that the risk of not doing something was greater than the risk of her doing something. 
And I want you to think about your life for a second and think about what moments have you gone through where you knew that there was something that needed to be done, but the sacrifice was too intimidating for you to take. We all have situations like that. And see, that's really what faith is, is knowing that it's not going to be easy, but doing it anyway. Faith is not having a plan B. Faith is just like this. Well, if I die, I die. If it doesn't work out, then I'm really going to be in a mess. Doesn't that make a lot more sense about what it means to trust God than this idea of faith being something that's just like a little bit out of your comfort zone, but if it all doesn't work out, you still have plan B? That's usually what we like to do is plan Bs. We like to analyze and think of different outcomes in our head We think, well, if this doesn't work out, I could always move back to my parents. Well, if this doesn't work out, then, you know, I could always go back here or go to this job or do that over there. We have all these plan B's of if it doesn't work out, I'll just do this. But real faith, that that real step of faith is that moment where you realize, man, there's really, it's either I do this or I don't. And all that anxiety weighs on your shoulders, all that, that worry and wonder of what if rests on your mind and you're just thinking golly i don't know how i'm gonna make it out of this god you're literally gonna have to do something or i'm gonna die i'm not gonna make it i'm gonna be homeless i'm gonna i'm not gonna be able to see the other end of this and when esther makes this choice right here She had somebody that could speak into her life, Mordecai. And it shows us the value of relationship within the church. Shows even in this one act of faith that we're not supposed to do things alone. That, That we need those supports in our life to where we could go to somebody and be like, dude, I really feel like I need to do this, but I don't know. And sometimes you need that person you can trust that's not going to think you're crazy. That's not going to be a negative Nancy. You need that person that you know is, is faithful and say, hey, you got to do this. If you feel like God's telling you to do this, you got to. And sometimes you just need that little push from someone you trust, someone of faith, and say, hey, man, it's going to be all right. You, you can do this. In fact, if you don't do this, God will use somebody else. And you, you can do this. You have everything in you to do it. And... We need people like that in our lives. And what's, what's awesome about this story too, is that part where Mordecai, he puts, he puts a real perspective. When we look at perspective, we often look at right now. Well, what if I get killed right now? Well, what if they judge me? What if they say no? What if they flip out if, when I invite them to church? You ever felt the, the nudge to invite someone to church, that unction to even be as bold to pray for somebody? And you think you know, all this fear comes over you for something so simple. And you're like, all the reasons why you shouldn't. Well, what if they do this? Or what if that? And what if they never talk to me again? What if, they, what if I'm really offensive by asking them if I can pray for them? What if, it, what if they find the invi- invitation to church so offensive and repulsive that they just ostracize me? <laughs> It's crazy how we think to that kind of level, right? 
And so where Mordecai says that if you don't do this, somebody else will. I mean, to know, if we were to look at levels like that, to know that God is literally not just dropping off a responsibility on your shoulders without thinking about it. That he's he could choose anybody in the world to put that on their heart to do something, to act. But he put it on your heart. He says, no, you have the ability to do this and I want you to do this. Now, if you don't do it, it's not, it, your, your, uh, your lack of action doesn't tie God's hands. That doesn't cause him not to be able to do anything. That he could use anybody, but he wanted to give you first dibs. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And that it's not just this random series of coincidences. It's not random chaos that all of a sudden you're in the spot today to do something. And you think, man, why did I have to be here right now? Someone else should do this. No, God, what if God destined you to do it? Y'all feel me? There is no one else. So we see that Esther makes the right decision. She gets her community to pray for her, to fast for her, to make this decision that she knows that she needs to take. Again, showing how important it is to have community. Church is not to, to be a one-on-one relationship with God. Church is supposed to be all of us together, worshiping God together. Church is about together, not solo. Another thing that's way different in our churches today. You just come and go like a microwave. Just enter in and take out. But what if we're all supposed to be mixed in together and put in the oven to bake all at once? Y'all like my analogies? Thinking about the fast. I'm thinking of all the things that I'm not going to be able to eat. Thres leches cake and Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't know if any of y'all salivated right now, but I did. <clears throat> Pushed in position to make a difference at the right time. Let's look at Mordecai. Mordecai seems like a, such a man of character right here. He's just telling her like it is. Encouraging to say, hey, you got to do this. Let's look at Mordecai for a second. So easy to just point to somebody else and say, yeah, do this. What about them? What about you? Why don't you do something, right? You, everyone has their own job. Everyone has their own acts of faith that they got to take. Let's look at Mordecai as we, as we see his simple actions. Mordecai is a person that takes simple actions. And it says in the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, we're backtracking even further. It's where Haman first made this decree to kill all the Jews. It says, sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down to show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but still he refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct. Since Mordecai had told him he was a Jew, 
When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay his hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. See, Mordecai, when he said, I'm a Jew, as a response to why he wasn't bowing down, he was saying, I only bow down to God. It'd be blasphemous for me to bow down to a human being when I, when I have the God in heaven that I bow down to. How can I show the same respect to a normal human that I show the respect to, to the God of the universe? And so his act of faith is a simple one. See, what I love about Mordecai is that he doesn't really have to think about it. He just acts. And the reason I like that so much is because one of the most common answers a Christian will give when there's a need to act is, do y'all know it? Anyone want to take a guess? I got to pray about it. I got to pray about it. You see a need. You know that something should be done. But because there is hesitation in your soul, your answer is, I got to pray about it. I'm not ready to commit to something like this. Let me pray about it. What is that prayer really like? I mean, who here has ever said, I need to pray about it and taken some days to pray and fast about it? I don't know anyone that really thought too intently about it. It's like when you ask them three days later, they say, oh yeah, I still got to pray about it. You ask them a month later, say, yeah, I'm still praying about it. Well, golly, how long do you have to pray? How long? Does God really just want to leave you in suspense that long? Don't you think he would have told you yes or no right by now? And see, Mordecai is a person that he already knows what's right and wrong because God gave him a conscience. He knows when there's something right to do and he knows when there's something wrong to do. And he doesn't got to pray about it because he already knows. He knows God's heart. He knows what God would want him to do. But too often we excuse ourselves from taking the simple actions that need to be done because we try to be use spiritualization as a way to procrastinate. Really don't want to make a decision on this now. I feel wrong saying no because there's part of me that thinks like I should do something, but I'm going to just throw a blanket over this situation with spiritual stuff and say I need to pray about it. If you don't feel like you should do it, say no. If you really feel confused about it, then yeah, pray about it. But don't use prayer as an excuse to postpone a decision that needs to be made. Because just like we read, someone else could fill in that spot if you would just say yes or no. Y'all dig what I'm saying? You don't have to be the only person in the universe, but you, you do got to be somebody. I love that Mordecai doesn't, it, it's just so simple for him. It just makes sense. Well, I'm not going to bow down to you because I only bow down to God. There's no part in here that says that he's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Didn't have to go and, and talk with somebody else and say, do you think I should really bow down to this guy? I mean, tell me what you think. He just has the, the character. He has the personhood to just know something and commit to it. 
But I don't know what happened in our culture to where we have to overanalyze and think about something for so long and ask 10 different people whether we know whether they think something is wrong or right when we already know that it's wrong. Y'all feel me? We need to be more of people of action. You know, it, it's, it's literally becoming a joke in the world of what Christians are like. People that, that talk a lot but do nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. Christians do more than any other organization. When you look at charities... And, and people that actually make a difference for uh, disaster relief, things like that. Uh, third world countries, Christians are the, the first people there. And Christians are the one that, ones that give the most. So don't get me wrong. But deeper than that, just on the surface level, day to day, we're becoming a people that are passive and, and do not do anything when something should be done. And what, what are we known for doing instead? Just talking about it. I, I, I make jokes myself. I said, no, the, this person really made me mad and I thought this and that about them. And someone says, well, did you do anything? No, I thought I'd do the Christian thing and talk about them behind their back. <laughs> I'll just talk about it when they're not around. I won't do anything about it. No, I'm not going to be rude. I just want to be sinister in my heart. <laughs> We just got to do something, guys. We just got to do something. That's it. There's not that much thought to it. He did something that he, he knew. He, he refused to do something that he knew was wrong right here. Let's, let's look at something, a time where he did something that he knew was right. A chapter before this, it says in Esther chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. This man had a beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah who is also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought in to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. What do we see here? We see a terrible situation that happens. It's most likely that her parents were killed when, uh, when Israel was taken over, when they were led off as captives. And Mordecai sees this little girl without parents. He sees a need. And the thought he has is, well, who's going to take care of her? And the transition is so fast, you almost miss it. It's almost like he, without even thinking about it, he says, no, you're my family. You're with me. There's no more thoughts that need to be had about it. I don't need to go around and ask 10 other cousins if they want to take care of you, I'm going to take care of you. If our churches would act like that, man, we would change the world. But if this situation were to happen at church today, I already know what would happen. You'd have 10, 20 people say, I need to pray about it. (laughs) I need to pray about it. I need to pray about it. And this little girl would be shuffled around, 
not knowing where she was going to stay, not knowing what she was going to do, while everybody was just praying about it. Some people would have probably been praying for her. How ridiculous. Having the means to make a difference, but praying for somebody else to do it. And Mordecai just said, no, you're with me. You don't even need to ask anybody else. I got you. See, Mordecai has, no, the the buck stops here. I'm going to do something. I'm not going to wait and wait and wait for somebody else to act. When even though I don't have that much, I'm going to give myself to you. Mordecai is willing to give of himself to see, see a need. And I can only imagine, I mean, where here does it talk about Mordecai's family? Where does it talk about his wife? Where does it talk about his other kids? Could it be possible that Mordecai was just a single dude? A nobody? Didn't have any means or any, any help? And instead of just looking for somebody else that was better off, he said, no, I'm going to do it. See, faith sometimes is something that you don't even have to think about. Faith is just knowing the right thing and doing it. And as Christians, we've got to stop passing the buck. We've got to stop expecting somebody else to do it. And, and I want to challenge you guys. The moment you start thinking somebody should do something, have a follow-up question of why can't I do something? Because what if there's no one else but you? Why wait? Why push it off when, when a life could be changed now? Y'all dig what I'm saying? Yeah. Seeing the need to act and acting. <laughs> We're going to look at one last person in the Bible. And I, I'm going to be honest, I've never heard anyone really talk about this person when it comes to this book. But I think that this person is one of the greatest faith takers that we see. And it's the, the, this last point is standing for something greater. Standing for greater. Look at your neighbor and say, I got to stand for something greater. We're going to look at the very first queen in this book, and that's Queen Vashti. This is where this whole episode started. This whole thing, we, we looked at the end result. We saw this crazy uh, climax in the middle to where all of the Jews were going to be killed. We know the resolution that they were all saved instead. What, and we see this huge transition where Esther, a nobody, was made queen. What caused all these events to transpire? It's Queen Vashti. It says in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 3, We're going to jump down to verse 9. It says, These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, 
as well as the princes and nobles of the provinces. So everybody who's anybody is here at this, this party the king is throwing. And at the very, it, it starts, it, the verses go on and say how great this party was, how magnificent, etc. And it ends by saying, at the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for all the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So you got the, the boys club going on in the main palace. All the nobles getting tore up, lit up. They're having a great old time. And Queen Vashti has all the women as well. Now think about this. This is a, uh, this is a, a woman of leadership. She's, she's not just there to look pretty. She's a queen. And you, we know that she has a level of leadership because she doesn't have to throw a banquet for the, the, all the women. Women were considered property then, if not less. And, and yet she takes upon herself to let the women know that they're more important than that. That they could have their own banquet too. That they could have meaningful influence in their country, in their community, in that kingdom. And it says, On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. Everyone, anyone do something dumb? They had a little too much wine. A little too much of this, a little too much of that. He told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, oh my gosh, Zethar, and Karkos, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when the, they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So, this is, this is a whole series in itself. But look at what happened here. She's trying to prove that she's not just a trophy wife. And what does he do? He tries to just make her that. He says, bring her here so everybody could see how beautiful she is. So that she could just stand there doing nothing. And just look pretty. That's what, the way I want her. And Bashi's already trying to make a point. Having her own banquet. And it shows this is on so many different levels, not just at, at, at a husband and wife kind of thing, but even at a business. You ever been trying to make a difference at, a, at an organization or a business that you're a part of, and you feel like the, the manager or the boss just completely goes against what you've been trying to do the last several weeks and months? It's like, man, I'm, don't you get what I've been doing here? You've even talked to them about it and it seems like it just goes right out over their head. Like... She's not really been listening to you. She's not really been listening to you. And they just keep on keeping on doing the same old mistakes over and over. No matter how hard you try to make a difference at that place. And here we see Vashti in that same spot. She's, and, and here it's even more special because she has all the women right in front of her. She's probably, I just imagine her right there giving a talk saying... Just because we're women doesn't mean that we have to sit back and do nothing. We should act and we should do something when we see a need. She's probably giving them a, a motivational talk. 
And all of a sudden, as she's making this exhortation about women making a difference in their community, making a difference in their households, the attendants come and say, Hey, Vashti, uh, the, the king wants you to come and look pretty in front of everybody. <laughs> she just got done telling everyone, It's not just about how we look, it's about what we can do. And the king says, Hey, he wants you to leave all this. Stop, stop your, your speech and everything. And come look pretty and just stand there in front of all the men while they're drinking and getting drunk. <laughs> doesn't say that the women were drunk. It just says the guys were drunk. Partying it up. Doing, isn't that really what guys do a lot? <laughs> I, they like to think that they're doing something, but they're just having fun. <laughs> Why'd you laugh so much, Lauren? <laughs> and it says that right here she makes a stand. See, this is where the faith started. She made a stand and she refused to go to the beckoning of the king. She told the women, this is it. This is where I'm going to show you that you can make a difference. And it says the king went into a furious rage. But see, Vashti said, no, I'm standing for something greater. I know that this is going to probably compromise my position right now and how even other people see me, but I believe that this is the right thing to do because I'm not okay with the things that have been going on. I'm not okay with everything staying the same. I want a difference to be made. I don't want to see the same pain over and over in every generation. I want to see something different in this generation, but I'm going to have to make a stand. I'm going to have to do something that I believe is right. And even though I might not be able to finish it, I'm at least going to start it. And it says, after this, it says, Mimicon answered the king and his nobles. The king said, what, what should we do about this queen disobeying my, my chauvinistic command? Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will, <laughs> it's just this verse is so funny. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands. When they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. <laughs> and yet it's the king and the men that are so angry. So if it, is, if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law, of the Persians and maids that cannot be revoked, it should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of the king Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their, from their wives. Man, everything she did was, was for nothing, right? said that take away her position because they recognized the stand that she was really making see it wasn't just her saying no I don't want to go even the nobles they all knew that she was making a stand for the women that's why they reacted so so worried oh, what if they all start acting like this they're all going to start thinking that they have their own thoughts they're all going to start thinking that they can make a difference. We can't have that. We need to shut it out now. 
We can't let what she's done continue forward. Shut her down. The faith that she thought she had, end it right now, king. And this is what caused the king to take away Vashti's authority, her position. She's no longer queen. She no longer can even be in the presence of the king. And it's at this point that he starts looking for a new queen. Where Esther comes into play and becomes the queen. And even though Vashti started to make a difference, and it seems like she was initially shut down, Esther is the one that caused the entire nation to be saved. It was Esther's voice that was heard before the king. See, you can start something, you might not be able to finish it, but it needs to be started because you're making a foundation, a platform for somebody else to finish it. You don't always have to be the one to finish something. Maybe you just need to start something. Because even though the king didn't want to listen to the queen's commands, by the end of the story, it says that the king told Esther, tell me whatever you want to do and I'll do it. Isn't that exactly what Vashti was trying to make a point of? The power and influence a woman could have to make a difference in the community. And it was a very woman that finished Vashti's act of faith by making a difference for all women in that time. And it was by Esther's hand that says that the kingdom was saved, that the Jews were saved. We, we are so hesitant in taking steps of faith because we can't see the end of it. Well, perhaps you're not the one to see the end of it. Maybe you're just the one to start something. Maybe in your family, you're the first person to make a decision that's different from every other family member. Maybe you're the first person to go to college. Maybe you're the first person to not drink. Maybe you're the first person to not be divorced. Maybe it's something that's just so simple and difficult right now but you're setting a, a precedent for the generations to come to where your kids won't look at the past, they'll look at you. And they'll see the difference that you made. And they'll forget about the time when you were taken out of position. They'll forget about the time that all everybody else laughed at you, that got angry at you. All the moments that were so difficult for you to get through, they're not going to know about that. They're only going to know about the difference you made. Maybe you just got to start something. But no matter what it is, there's no one else that's going to make those decisions but you. And if you continue to hold back and wait and pray about it, quotations, you're never going to be the one to make the difference. You're never going to be the one to see mountains move. Faith is not prayer. Faith is action. Faith says that believing the things that were hoped for, but it means that you believe it so much that you act it out, that you're walking it out. Your faith in God, your faith is not your simple belief. It's the actions you take in repentance and the life that you live that shows the faith that you have. In the book of James, it says faith without works is dead. 
Faith is literally action. And it's time for us as Christians to stop talking all this spiritual stuff and start acting it out. You tell me, what is more meaningful as a Christian? What would you reverence more if you met somebody that said, I'm praying to see God's glory come down on this church, on people, or someone that's out there giving of themselves to the homeless? Which is greater? Someone that's praying for God to move in the people of San Antonio or someone that's just out there serving at a soup kitchen? Who's actually doing something? We need to make a difference in our city. We need to make a difference in our family. And we do need to pray, yes, but it's also time to act. I want us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today, and maybe the first step of faith you need to make is a commitment to God. It's that commitment to God to say, I I, want to make this serious. I don't want to just keep praying and acting like I believe you. I want to make a decision to really follow you. If you're here and you need to do that for the first time, I want you to raise your hand with every eye closed and head bowed. I see your hands. I see your hands. So what I want you to do is I want you to pray this prayer after me. And if you've already given your life to Christ, I want you to repeat this prayer too as a reaffirmation of your faith. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all you have to do to have this relationship with Christ, the the very thing that you have to do to start it is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and surely you shall be saved. Surely you shall have that love of God into your heart. So pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I put my faith in you because I believe you died for me on the cross, that you acted when you saw my need. Be the savior of my soul and the Lord of my life because I believe you rose from the dead. Forgive me of my past, of my sins, of my unbelief. I take this step forward as a new life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. And in this same kind of reverence, I want us all to stand up.